There we are. There we are. Okay. <laughs> hello. Good. Hello, everybody. On this Monday, I have to tell you about an hour ago, two hours ago, I didn't know if this was, this was going to happen. The streaming software people that I used to actually do all this made some changes, and I just they were not out of his Patty way. Just, I was so <laughs> mad I, and frustrated, and and. Uh, you know, Facebook has made so many changes. You know, they just all need to take a chill pill and calm down for a bit. It all worked fine. I know. So, but anyway, I got it working, so we're all here, we're right, here. man? So if I hadn't said anything, nobody would even know, except for Linda Rivera, who did ha happen to see one of my test postings. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I've already deleted that, so anyway. You know, I think before some of these companies make the changes, they should, like, send out a poll. I absolutely get furious every time my iPhone gets updated. Yeah, I know. You hate that. it always changes in a way that I wish I could go back and do. Same thing with the iPad. It changes it, and it will be, you know, just the way you've done it for so long, and you're totally happy doing it that way, and you don't see how the new way is going to be any better? Well, it's partly my fault because I'm the one who decided I would let them do the upgrade, you know, on the day of class, which is not good. It's really not what I should have done, but they've lulled me in because they've all been innocuous until today's until when it was today. not innocuous but anyway we're here and it's monday and we're going to start hosea today we are and it's a totally different last monday it was not so nice and we were waiting for the winter storm and it got it was actually oh, it, a lot worse yeah. than we thought it was yeah. going to be so yeah. but we finished nice up today. second thessalonians last week so That's we're going right. to do hosea this week so it'll be good and, and we'll, we'll press on remember yeah. you like hosea better because you can say it easier. That's what. Yes, yes. <laughs> Jose is much easier for me to say. So one thing I don't have a slide on this, but we do not have class next Tuesday because Pat and I will be gone next Tuesday, we Valentine's will. Day. Do you know yes. where we will be on Valentine's Day? Um, I don't. We might. Still, I don't remember. We might be at sea. I'm huh. not sure. I don't know. Wherever it is, it's yes. going to be nice. Yes, it will be very right? nice. Yeah, yeah. So we will be gone next next Tuesday and next Monday. This is Monday class. Yes. So we'll be gone next Monday. And, um, but then we'll be back on the, must be Feb, February 20th. Yes. So we'd appreciate any prayers for safe travel. Yes. And this is our first cruise. We are big cruisers, yes. like way into double digits cruising, but we have not taken a cruise since 2019. Yeah. So. It's our first time this back. This will be our first one back since COVID and, um, We'll see what it's like. It's we'll report be... back. Yes. Yes. So. Okay. Very good. Anyway, hope everybody's having a good day, and I guess it's ready for you to open us with okay. a prayer. Well, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. See, today is sunny and warm, and maybe some rain tomorrow, but last week, whew, a lot of snow and, well, not so much snow, but a lot of ice and cold weather, and we're just uh, grateful to be on the other side of that, and we're grateful to have the opportunity to come together like this, rain or shine. We can come together, um, even online, as we are now. And um, today we'll begin a new book, going way back, way back in time to the to to Hosea. And we just pray that you will help us to hear the message of Hosea well. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
going to scoot on over. Okay, so the first thing you should probably do is find the book of Hosea in your Bible. It'll be nestled back there with all the little books that are called the Minor Prophets. There's 12 of them after the book of Daniel. And they're not really, they're not minor in the sense of less important. They're just minor in terms of being shorter. But maybe they didn't want to call them the shorter prophets for fear the prophet would feel offended. I don't know, shorter prophet. So usually you'll see them written as the minor prophets or the lesser prophets. And the book of Hosea is right in there. If you're like me, I stuck a, <laughs> I stuck a, like a post-it note on in the first page of that book so I could easily find Hosea because these the minor prophets books aren't long so you it takes it takes a minute to find them so very good so let's see I have there isn't a lot of introductory material that's helpful with Hosea but I'll, I'll share some with you um, let me get to the right slide there we go so Hosea worked and he was in a, he was a prophet who was prophesying and as you'll see more during the period between about 755 and 722 BC and we know that because there's enough time markers in the book to be able to be pretty certain about when he was working um, 70 we know that he was a prophet to the northern kingdom as the slide says in fact he was the he was the only writing prophet to the northern kingdom. By writing, we mean there's a book that has his name. Like Elijah. Elijah's a famous prophet, right? But Elijah did, didn't write. He did stuff. He didn't write. And so there's not a scroll of, of Elijah. But Elijah was a prophet of the northern kingdom confronting Ahab. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom. And because the northern kingdom is swept away by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., well, um, that's why we can pretty much peg what happened there. So I did bring a map just to refresh your memory about the kingdoms. So when Hosea is prophesying and doing as God instructs him to do, there are two kingdoms of the Israelites. They're one, actually one big family. They're all the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, these are the 12 tribes, but in a, in a civil war and a separation, they have divided themselves into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom in the north, naturally, in the green, is called Israel, and the southern kingdom in the orange is called Judah. The southern kingdom is called Judah because it is utterly dominated by one tribe. That is the tribe of Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. The northern kingdom of Israel is comprised of ten tribes. And it covers a large area. But as I note on the slide, in 722 BC, it is going to be swept away and overrun by the, by the Assyrians. But the southern kingdom of Judah will, will go on ever shrinking and shrinking and shrinking until finally Jerusalem is overrun by the Babylonians about 140 years later or so, something like that. 
Okay, so so Jose is a prophet working in the northern kingdom. Now, what distinguishes the northern kingdom is that um, they are, they're a mess. They're a mess. So how can I set the stage for that? Well, let me do it this. Let me just tell you the story very briefly. When Solomon dies, his son takes over, and his son was an idiot. And he went to the tribe, northern tribes who were already itchy and antsy, given the power and the size of the tribe of Judah. And he said to them, oh man, you think my father was tough? I'm going to be much tougher. And the northern tribes rebelled, and the northern tribes left. And the leader of that was uh, Jeroboam. There's several kings named Jeroboam, but he's the original one. So Jeroboam, who is a very competent fellow in terms of like administration and building things, took the northern tribes into a terrible direction. And he knew that in order to maintain control of this northern kingdom, he needed to keep the people there and to keep the people from going to Jerusalem where Solomon's temple was. And so he constructed a golden calf pretty much just like in the book of Exodus. And he built a northern calf to put up at a place called Dan, up at the northern reaches of the kingdom of Israel, and another one in, the, in Beersheba in the southern, sort of the southern border of the kingdom of, of Israel. And it really set the stage for the kingdom of Israel really being utterly faithless, led that way by their kings. Um, in the book of Kings, it tells the story of the kings of the north, the kings of Israel, and the kings in the south, the kings of Judah, really kind of in parallel. And they get report cards. And almost invariably, the king of the north, the king of Israel, gets a report card that says, you know, um, uh, the king led the people away from God. He, uh, there's never been anybody as bad as this king. He followed the sins of his father. And if it was going to be a really, really bad report card, he would be compared to jo Jeroboam, the guy who made the golden calves. Because you can imagine how much making golden calves um, was a sin against God. So, for example, King Ahab and his queen Jezebel, right? Famous, famous personages from from um, that time. They were he was a king of the of the north, the king confronted by Elijah. So that is the setting of this these tribes who have been really faithless toward God. That's the stage that Hosea steps onto. Okay, they have a lot of problems in the southern kingdom too, but not to the degree of the northern kingdom. So, um, in Hosea, in the book of Hosea, you basically get his story, which I'll talk about in a minute, and you get this series of sermons or reflections on the balance between God's love and God's wrath. God's love and God's wrath. wrath. God's mercy and God's justice, we might say. Right? Because what does God do with the northern kingdom? Why? 
these people have utterly disregarded the covenant that their ancestors made at the foot of Mount Sinai when they were given the Ten Commandments. What is God to do? Just to pretend it doesn't matter? Probably not. It does matter. So, um, that's probably enough background, I guess, unless anybody has a question they want to put in the comment box for me. We, you know, we don't know much about the personal lives of these prophets. We pretty much what we have is what we have on the piece of paper. Um, I'll explain a little bit once we start the book, a little bit about what happens after the, maybe after the book is finished, okay? But we, we really don't. We just have the writing. And we, the Jews took the writing as sacred and inspired in a way that other writings were not. And these were the words of the prophets. And the scroll of Isaiah was value, valued and seen as being inspired. God breathed, Paul says. God breathed. And I think we will get a lot out of the journey through Hosea if we can just sort of keep a few of these basics in mind that the, the people he's, that God is speaking to through Hosea are, are faithless and have been for a long time. Worshiping pagan gods, putting altars up to pagan gods like Baal and other ones. Even their kings putting up altars to pagan gods. Um, and remembering that Hosea is, a, is this piece of writing about this balance between God's love and God's wrath, God's mercy and God's justice, um, which we talk about today in all kinds of settings, New Testament and Old Testament. Okay? Scott? Yes. Is... is um... Is there anywhere um, that we know that who wrote this? From what I looked up, I could not see anybody being credited to this book. Well, I, I think I think it's Hosea. Oh, he himself? Yeah, he, he himself. Okay, so he's yes. sort of writing like, okay. I mean, he speaks uh, of himself not in the first person. So. He speaks of himself not in the first person. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But yeah, I think Hosea, what kind of editors... Um, are doing it. It's really not like the stories of Daniel. There's some stories in Daniel which are written in such a way that anybody could write them. But, but Hosea is bringing God's word to the people. And he, let me just give you a little bit on that. He's going to do it two ways. One is he's going to actually bring God's word, right? Like, like the Lord says. The other way is he is going to, he's going to, going to enact the prophecy. It's something Jeremiah does. Something Jeremiah, several times Jeremiah enacts God's word. He takes in a clay jar and smashes it because that's what God is going to do to Israel. He buys a piece of land in Jerusalem just as the Babylonians are, are about to overrun it because God is going to bring the people back. These are enacted prophecies. And, and Hosea is going to do the same thing. And so when we read the story of Hosea, it is the story of Hosea and Gomer, and it is the story of God and his people, the Israelites, focused on the northern kingdom. Okay? 
Though, as I said, the southern kingdom have plenty of their issues too, but the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, they're the ones really in, in focus here. Okay, anything else? Nope, that's it. We kind of we picked up a whole bunch of people. Okay, very good. Well, I'm glad everybody is here. I'm glad the system is working. Yes, that's what I'm... I might have said a few bad words about two hours ago. I didn't hear any of them. <laughs> okay, well, good. I only said might have. I don't know. But I was not too happy, let me tell you. Okay, so let's just go to Hosea, chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, so he is a prophet to the northern kingdom. And in this first verse, it is written, maybe not by him, the word of the Yahweh, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord. Maybe I'll take a second to explain that. Whenever you see the small caps Lord, like right there, actually in the Hebrew, it's the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush. Sort of Y-H-W-H. It's called the Tetragrammaton. I don't ask me why. The Tetragrammaton, okay? So I often will read this with with the with the name of God where the Lord appears, because I think it helps to understand that this is that God is personal. God is not the God of Plato, some, you know, immovable force. Some unmoved mover, Aristotle called him, called really it. So this is this is personal. The word of Yahweh that came to Hosea, son of Biri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And during the reign of Jeroboam, not the one I was just talking about because we're later now, but this is another Jeroboam. During the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So you get kings in the south and you get kings in the north. Kings in Judah and kings of Israel. Okay? Why do you have the kings of Judah at this, in this opening paragraph when the book is really all about the northern kingdom? Probably because when the Assyrians overran the ten tribes that made up the north. Um, either Hosea escaped and made his way southward to Judah, or the scroll did. And when it made its way to Judah, somebody um, appended to the front end of this the names of the southern kings at the during this time. Because Hosea, Hosea, as I showed on the previous slide, his work... You can sort of trace it over a period of about, I don't know, 30 years or so like that. And there's enough clues in there to do it. We're not, I'm not too concerned about all that. Um, we want to hear the message that God has for these people. Not, um, not work out all the intricacies of the timelines, I don't think. Okay, so. Verse 2. When Yahweh began to speak through Hosea. Yahweh said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to Yahweh. 
Is that a sentence or what? So, oh, do scholars like to debate this sentence? My gosh, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. Um, so, it's a woman who sleeps around. The question is whether or not she's a prostitute not prostitute or not. Is she a prostitute from one of the pagan temples around or not? And on and on and on the scholars go around it. The key thing is to realize that she is not a faithful woman, and he cannot expect her to be a faithful wife. That's the point. Because who is not faithful in the larger sense? Israel to the Lord, right? Israel to God, exactly. And there's this big overarching metaphor in scripture from beginning to the end about a bride and a groom, a husband and a wife. And in that big overarching metaphor, God is the husband and Israel is the wife. And the covenant they make at Mount Sinai is like the covenant between a husband and a wife. And when they are when they are to, the Israelites are to be true to that covenant. They are to what? They are not to take the Lord's name in vain. They are not to chase after other gods. They are to keep the Lord's day holy and the rest of it. And so this covenant made at Mount Sinai between God and, his, and these Israelites, the family of Abraham, the metaphor for that is, is marriage. And doesn't that say a lot about the biblical perspective on marriage? And I think it underlies why the Christian church has always been very focused on marriage. And that's why the, the challenges to traditional marriage now are taken so seriously by large portions of the Christian church. And, you know, that topic is not what we're talking about here, but this, this covenant relationship between God and his people is expressed as the covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. Even when you go all the way to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, and you go to the end of the book of Revelation, all the way out there to chapter 19 in Revelation, Jesus is coming back. And for whom is he coming back? His bride. And who is his bride? The church. The body of believers. All those who have put their faith in Christ. And so you get these marvelous passages and images at the end of Revelation where the Lamb, that's Jesus, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, is coming back and there's going to be a marriage feast and a marriage supper because it is the time. Everything is coming to, to its time of complete and utter renewal and restoration, but it's still within that marriage metaphor between God and his people. If you don't get that, you will not understand what's happening in the book of Hosea. You'll, you'll, you'll ask, you, well, why is God going to have him go marry a hooker? <laughs> the reason is because he wants Hosea to experience the unfaithfulness 
an anguish that God experiences because God's people are not faithful. They are not a faithful wife. They are not a faithful bride. And if you don't see that, you're going to miss most of, you're going to miss all my favorite parts of Hosea. Because some of them are just so beautiful. But if you don't, if you don't get that marriage stuff, the husband and wife, the bride and the groom, you're just, it, it just won't make, won't have much effect on you. Okay. So are we pretty clear there, Patty? Am I being clear? Am I being a, good teacher here about yes, explaining things absolutely absolutely so let's read let's read what what god says to hosea now and oh of course the scholars argue about whether hosea actually did any of this i guess i think so jeremiah i think does break the earthen jar jeremiah does buy the piece of land here i think hosea does this he is going to experience what God wants him to experience with, which is the anguish of unfaithfulness. The anguish of unfaithfulness. So back to verse 2. Yahweh said to Hosea, Go, marry a promiscuous woman. You might have a translation that even says prostitute there because there are those. And I'm not going to argue about which it is. It doesn't matter. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to Yahweh. That encapsulates the Old Testament. You could take that verse and you can marry it up with another one of my favorites, which is at, which is at the end of the book of Judges, um, which is from an earlier time. There was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. <gasps> you know, these verses get dropped there. When you, when you grasp them and you underline them or whatever you do, you realize that the Old Testament is it's a tragic story. The people are unwilling to be the people they promised to be. They are unwilling to be the people God created them to be. And so in the end, the only solution is what? For God to provide a faithful Jew, an utterly faithful Jew who will be utterly faithful to God in all things and that Jew has a name and that name is Yeshua, Jesus, who is indeed God himself. And when you, that stuff begins to tie together in your mind and your heart, it's it's just I don't know this just it's just I always say mind-blowing but that's a cliche it just you're just overwhelmed by it you're just overwhelmed by it but here this is the problem that God has to solve how does God solve this problem of a people who won't be faithful they won't keep the promises when we when we Covenant to some when we marry somebody, we make promises to the person we're marrying. Israel, the family of Abraham, the Israelites, those are synonyms, they made promises to God at Mount Sinai. God didn't impose the covenant upon them. Three times in the book of Exodus, they're asked, Do you want to do this? Do you want to enter in this covenant? 
every time the people said yes, yes, yes. But they don't. And almost immediately they don't because they build that stupid golden calf. Chapter 32, 33, 34 in the book of Exodus. And then that sin is repeated over and over to the point where, where when, when the civil war ends and the northern tribes leave that, they make a golden calf again. It's just the worst. It's just the worst. And it makes me wonder, you have to wonder why God even sticks around. God is uh, determined. God is just so determined. So relentless in his love for these people. And his love for you and me. It's, it's, well, okay, so it's mind-blowing. I'll use the cliche again. All right? Any thoughts, questions, anything? Nope, very quiet. Verse 3. So, Hosea married Gomer. That was my stupid reference last week to Andy Griffith, right? So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived, and she bore him a son. Because that's pretty much how it worked. This is another one of those little things, like you were saying, some people wonder if it really happened. He does take the time to, you know, even tell us whose daughter she is. Yes, like, it exactly. Is like, it is it, a it, real it, thing. It, exactly. So I, I, I just think people are sometimes just way too skeptical of, about this. We, we find out who Hosea's father is. We find out who Gomer, um, presumably that would be her father. It's a very patriarchal, patriarchal culture. So, she conceived and bore him a son. Now we're going to come to these children and their names. And this is going to be really important to the rest of the book. Because in, in Hebrew... Names in the Bible almost always mean something regarding the context of the person who is being born. Okay? The names mean something. Jacob wrestles with God at the river, and God gives Jacob an, a new name. What's his new name? Israel. Israel, which means wrestles with God. So, verse 4. Then Yahweh said to Hosea, Call him, this is the firstborn son to Hosea and Gomer, call him Jezreel. Jezreel. That's a place name. There's a valley of Jezreel. I'm going to show it to you real quick before I even bother reading on. Boom. Because I brought maps and photos. Okay, Scott. Here we go. There's the two kingdoms. And right there, that star, is where the Jezreel Valley is. Okay? There are a lot of vantage points. One is Megiddo. One is up on Mount Carmel. All of them look down across the Jezreel Valley, which is really just quite lovely. Um, here's a picture of it taken, I don't know, probably a drone these days, looking out across the Jezreel Valley. And of course, this is modern-day Israel, so it's all developed and irrigated and so forth. But um, it, it, it's a lovely area. But boy, an area with a bloody history. A bloody history. Um, we'll come back to that one. So, it's where there was um, a king of in the north named Jehu. 
and Jehu um, was really, I think, um, anointed for his role, but like so many, just lost his way. He was the killer of kings of Israel and kings of Judah, um, wiping out entire households, wiping out, exterminating genocide against the worshipers of Baal, just all happening in the Jezreel Valley. So the Jezreel Valley, which the word, the name Jezreel means like a beautiful place, became a name associated with blood and violence. Which we'll see is why it's being used here. So let's look on. So the, the firstborn son is going to be called Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu. That is the kingdom of Israel. Jehu is in the line of the kings in the northern kingdom for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Well, that's a foreboding thing there, right? And of course, what does it look ahead to? The destruction of the kingdom of Israel and the house of Jehu at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC. Verse 5, In that day I will break Israel's bow, like, like an archer's bow, in the valley of Jezreel. So, wow, wow. The, son is, the son's name is Jezreel, beautiful place, but it's a name given to the son because it portends what God is going to do to the kingdom of Israel. You see, God's wrath, God's justice. What does God do with his faith? less violent people. What does God do when the rivers and streams in Jezreel, in the Jezreel Valley, flow with blood? What do you think, um, I will break Israel's bow? Do you think that kind of meant like, I will, I will leave them defenseless? Something along those lines? Break their might. Break their might. Break their might is probably break how I will. would see okay. it, yes. Because a bow would be a symbol of, you know, military strength. It's, yes, fighting or right. maybe leaving themselves vulnerable if they don't have a bow. I, I, well, I just think it's this, this larger picture of, of, I will break Israel's strength. Okay. That's the, way I, that's the way I would see it. Gotcha. In that day, I will break Israel's strength in the Valley of Jezreel. And that's what happens, like I said, because the Assyrians, not surprisingly, the Assyrians, when they overrun Israel, they're a huge, mighty empire stretching from Turkey across, all the way across, over toward, you know, um, uh, my, what we think of as modern-day Persia and southward, and, and it's just, they're a big, huge empire. And... I don't think it's it's a big exertion for them to overrun the kingdom of Israel. The miracle, the shocking thing is that they don't overrun the kingdom of Judah at the same time. And the reason is because God comes to Judah's rescue, which puts things off for a while, but not forever, because Judah themselves are overrun by the Babylonians. But again, a story for another day. 
Okay. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. And say, Mona says, your military power. Yeah, yeah, that's that's got to be what that's getting at. Verse 6, well, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then Yahweh said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. Because the word Ruhamah means compassion. Love, perhaps, or compassion is probably a little bit more direct. And the and the low at the front means not. So so her name means no compassion. Well, well why does God instruct that she be named something like that? And God says, For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, Yahweh their God, will save them. So, the, the northern kingdom is going to suffer the consequences of their choices. And their choices have always been against God. So, so what happens if you picture, if you picture God, picture it this way maybe, God's protective hand just sort of being withdrawn after being God has been rejected decade after decade, century after century. Because it's been, how long? It's been maybe 200 years since the tribe, since the kingdom separated. So I will call her Lo-Ruhama, which means not loved. And you're going, oh my gosh. Wow. Well, verse 8. After she, Gomer, had weaned Lo-Ruhama, Gomer had another son. And Yahweh said, call him Lo-Ami, or Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. And if you know your Bible, you're gasping. Why? Because one of the foundational statements from beginning to end in the scripture, beginning in Genesis, Exodus, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, onward into the New Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And now God says, name this child Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Wow. Wow. So, um, yeah, Patty, wow. So in this, this, um, uh, there's a scholar named Joachim Jeremias who wrote that there's a, he pointed out there's a progression in these names. So Jezreel, which is a place, is the kingdom of Israel faces a future with no king. And then, with the next child's name, the kingdom of Israel will be without God's compassion. And then finally, with the third child, the kingdom of God faces a future without God.
You will not be, you are not my people. You will not be my people. And I will not be your God. It's just so important in this to remember the perspective of the covenant that is made at Mount Sinai. That it's that it's that it's two way. The promises made to Abraham are really one way promises. God just tells Abraham what God's going to do for him and the family. But by the time you get to Mount Sinai, after the Exodus, um, it's different. It's a genuine covenant with with requirements on both parties, with blessings and consequences and stuff that are tied to that covenant. Both parties, God and the people, make commitments. And the people are utterly failing to keep their commitment. And that's, you see, that's why... That's why it's important to grasp that the woman he go, Jose has been charged to marry is a woman who is not going to be a faithful wife to him. We're not fully to that part yet. So far, they just got married and had kids. <laughs> but you can see, you can see where where it's going, and that's what makes it such. Um, such a powerful piece of, of writing is that you can imagine this man, Hosea. God has come to him and he didn't tell him to build an ark or something like, like that. He wants him to marry a woman who he knows is going to be unfaithful to him because that's how, that's what the Israelites have done to God. They have been unfaithful to God. And, as, and the anguish and heartache that Gomer will feel is the anguish and heartache that God feels over these people who have turned away from God. Just turned away from God. Okay. Um... Yeah, but Josie, the I see Josie's comments about no longer God's imagers. No, they would still be God's imagers. They're still made in the image of God because we're talking two different languages here. The ego ami is in Greek. This lo ami is in um, Hebrew. So I, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's anything anybody ever does that can erase the image of God within themselves. What we can, you know, I, I was reading a long time ago, N.T. Wright on this. He said, it's it's like this. He says, he says, he said, I, I envision that in each of us there is a statuette, like the Oscar, that's that's all golden and it's beautiful. And, and the sins in our lives, they chip away at it piece by piece by piece. It gets tarnished and broken and smaller and smaller. But I agree with, with Wright that, that nowhere in Scripture does it say that that image of God in a person is finally gone. And why? Why? Because the image of God in us is what makes us human. That's what distinguishes us as human. If the image of God in a person were to completely disappear, then they would no longer be human. They would be brutes, beasts. They would be, but not human, not human. So um, anyway, 
yeah. Yeah, so Mike says, yeah, it's difficult to imagine the sadness. I'm, I mean, you know, the, 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 and we're not done with the story part of this, okay? Uh, this is just the introduction um, to this, okay? And when you get to the end of verse 9, you you just kind of got your head and your hands, and you're going, oh, goodness. They are face a future without a king, without God's compassion, and then without even God, And then you come to verse 10. Yet. This is God still. Yet. I love that. Yet. You got to look for those. Yet. The Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. You know, so, Paul, my hair just stood up on the back of my neck. They will be called children of the living God. For me, I think for many, this is one of those signposts that you find in all these little places in the Old Testament that look ahead that in their truest sense, look ahead to Jesus. Look ahead to Jesus, because God is not going to actually abandon these people. They deserve it, right? But our God is a God who pours grace out, whose, whose mercy is without end, and they, they aren't going to get what they deserve. Sure, in the short term, the Assyrians are going to overrun them, but you got to take a big look at the larger at the larger story here. There are worse things than death. Go back to the children's names again. There are worse things than death. Look at number three. They're going to face a future without God. That's the worst. That's the definition of hell. Hell is apart from the presence of being apart from the presence, utterly apart from the presence of God. Which blessedly none of us experience in this life. Utterly apart from the presence of God. So, so at the same time as God has been dispensing these names that reflect the wrath of God, the justice of God, because <laughs> who these people have been. On the other hand, on the other side, what do we have? Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel, those are the two kingdoms, will come together they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel, meaning this beautiful valley will, even that valley will one day be redeemed. It's a, it's a picture, it's a portrait of a great promise that God is making ben, because God is the great promise maker and that promise is kept in 
Jesus. That promise is kept in the Incarnation. That promise is kept in the second person of the triune God taking on human flesh. Not seeing his godness as something to be exploited, but emptying himself and being obedient and humble, obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. That's the extent to which God goes to make a promise such as this one become concrete, to be fulfilled, to be, to be manifest. Okay? And up to this point, we really don't know if Hosea is the father of these children. Well, that's a really interesting point, isn't it, Patty? It is. I mean, there's... Why don't we hang on to that point, Patty? Oh, okay. Because okay. all it does is say, well, what? Name them this, name them that, you know? Well, and... it says that she married Gomer and she conceived and bore him a son. Yes. But it doesn't actually say. So let's just hang on to that thought okay. for a while, okay? okay? Yep. At least until next week. Okay. Not next week, we'll be gone. Two weeks from now. Oh, oh gosh, that's a long time to wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, finally, in verse 2, chapter 1, closing out the last section, say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. So it would actually read like this. The people of Judah and the people of... It, to go back to verse 11 at the end of chapter 1. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. So this is very standard prophet stuff. Very standard prophet stuff is to lay out the coming judgment and then to bring the promises of renewal and restoration. And that, you'll find that all the way through the prophets, all the way through the Old Testament. And the question is how? And on the lips of Jews in Jesus' day, the question would be, well, like when? We've waited hundreds and hundreds of years. When? And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, what does he say? The kingdom of God, wait, the time is fulfilled. You're done waiting. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news. That's what he says to people who have been waiting a long time. So, so let's just say that you are Hosea or one of his buddies or one of the people around him and stuff. Or even the kingdom of Israel writ large. What's the question you have? at this point, after these, oh, the names and everything that they mean laid out, your question is going to be, well, why? Why are we not your people? Why do we not have your compassion? Why? Why? And so, wow, it got dark here. And so, in... Uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, the answer from God is given. 
Okay, so let's just read through it. We don't have to stop everywhere or you lose the impact of it. God is just going to lay out Israel's unfaithfulness and God's anger at it. And much of it is in this metaphor of marriage, a husband and wife. Okay? A husband and an adulterous wife. The husband being God, the adulterous wife being Israel. Verse 2. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Speaking of... Um, yes, it's... it's You know, yes, it's Hosea speaking, you know, to the children, but you just have to hold both those things together. Hosea speaking to the children, God speaking to Israel. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and I will make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert. Turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. In the context of Hosea, Perhaps Patty's right wow. that these children, that's why I really, I, I, you know, people have gotten away from the prostitute thing here in Gomer. And, but the point is that the children that she bears him aren't his kids. And think about the anguish and all of that. They are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, and this you, you just have to hear God's view of Israel in all of this. She said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Who did Israel go after? All the pagan gods and goddesses, Baal, Astarte, Asherah, and the rest of them. That's where the northern kings took them. Altars built on mountaintops to these pagan gods and goddesses. It's like at the bottom of Mount Sinai when the people thanked the stupid golden calf for say, bringing them out of Egypt. It's, 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 it's ridiculous, but it's so human. Verse 6. So Hosea slash God says... Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. And then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they used for Baal. Baal is like a chief god in the Canaanite pantheon. And that makes you realize, yes, yes, it's written in, in Hosea speaking to the kids about the mom, but it's also God speaking about Israel. At the same time, it's a big, gigantic metaphor. And it's powerful. It's powerful. 
Of course God gave them everything. There is no Baal, so Baal couldn't give them anything. There is no Asherah. There is no Astarte and these other pagan gods and goddesses. They don't exist. They're products of a fevered human imagination. They don't exist. They couldn't give the Israelites anything. So verse 9, so I, almost with a sigh I hear this. Therefore I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool. I'll take back my linen intended to cover her naked body. I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. Right? Puts Israel right in your face again as the reader or hearer of this. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers pagan gods and goddesses I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them the vineyards are this gift from God for the Israelites God in the in the other in the metaphor around vineyards you know um, God is the vine grower God is the owner of the vineyard and the people tend this vineyard and it gives them great fruit and many blessings and so on but here it's all going to be taken away because they credit the pagan gods like Baal for everything. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares Yahweh. Me she forgot. It's another wow. Wow, how many people in our land forget God, have forgotten God, want to forget God? But me, she forgot, declares Yahweh. So you would think this is about the time when lightning and thunder and everything else would come raining down on Israel, right? We just read the last, what are they, 12 verses? Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Here's a big, a long 12-verse answer to the question of why. But let's go on. Therefore, God says, therefore, and you're just waiting for the shoe drop, the hammer to fall, right? Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I'm going to I'm going to read this a little bit differently. Therefore, I am now going to allure Israel. I'm going to allure my people. I will lead my people into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to them. You see, all of a sudden the things have changed. Now it's a love poem. I am going to allure her and I will lead her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the, the valley of Achor a door of hope. She will respond as in the days of her youth when it was young and it was fresh and we were making promises at the foot of Mount Sinai. Look at the last line. As in the day she came up out of Egypt. Oh, yes. Oh, that's okay, honey. She will respond as in the days. It'll, it's, it's like... 
it it's like a God just we're just we're just gonna start over. We're just gonna start over. I'll take you out. We'll go out. We'll start dating again. We'll have we'll have a first date. We're just gonna start up. We're gonna have a first date again. I'm gonna take you out, and and we're just gonna start over. I will allure her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and she will respond. As in the day she came up out of Egypt, in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals, those are all the pagan gods and goddesses, from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the fields, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land that all may lie down in safety. Who does that sound like? That sounds like the prophet Micah. He says that in the days to come, the nations are come streaming to Mount Zion, and sore, famously, everybody knows this line, swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and everybody will sit under their own, under the fig trees and talk peace. And people will get to live in their own house. And they will get to, to, to enjoy the fruit of their own labor. And again, this old, these lines here are glimpses of a world at peace. which in 2023, we have yet to come to, correct? Yes. It's the promise of the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 21 and 22, that we will live in a world of peace. The bow and the sword and battle, God is, will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety, meaning lie down to sleep. Because, you see, at nighttime, when you close your eyes, that's when you could be gotten, right? People could sneak into your house and, like, stab you or something. So, so nighttime was, in the ancient world, you know, here we have houses. We lock the doors and all the rest of it because we don't want that to happen to us. In the ancient world, they didn't have any of that. They were exposed in the dark and at nighttime in a way they weren't exposed during the day. So that all may lie down in safety. Just sleep peacefully without worry because it's a world of peace verse 19 i will betroth you to me forever as to be in like to be engaged bonded i will betroth you in righteousness and justice in love and compassion because that's who god is god is righteous and just god is love and god is compassion I will bind you to me in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge Yahweh. In that day I will respond, declares Yahweh. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil 
and they will respond to Jezreel. All creation is wrapped up in this, in God's project. All creation is, is, is part of the project. Go back and read um, some of the consequences in Genesis 3 and 4 of the rebellion against God. The ground is going to become hard to work and thistles and briars and the rest of it. It's why the trees sing and the rocks sing at the coming of Christ. There's this moment where the, the Pharisees want the people want tell Jesus that they want him to make the people shut up. And he says, ah, even the rocks and trees will sing because they are caught up in this. Um, uh, Paul does it in Romans 8 when he says, all creation groans as if in labor pains, awaiting its redemption. So it, it, it's God's practice is larger than even just us humans. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will, verse 23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. And I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Wow. Your assignment this what in these next couple of weeks is to spend a little more time with Hosea one and two. It is one of my favorite passages. I the turn from verse fifteen to verse sixteen. Wait, let me go back a little bit further. The turn from verse thirteen to verse fourteen is just remarkable. It's just remarkable, and and. People who find only a God of wrath in the Old Testament are people who don't read it carefully, who don't read it well. Because, of course, God is a God of wrath. There's a lot of things that happen in this world God should darn well be wrathful about. They flashed across my TV set every day. There's new ones. I want God to be angry about those injustices and the murder and the violence and the thing, terrible things we do to one another, big and small. But God's wrath is tempered by God's mercy and by God's grace and by God's determined, relentless rescue of humanity and this world to the point that God would take on human flesh, right? You see, that, that it all brings you to God's, to the incarnation of Jesus, to the incarnation of the second person of the triune God, the incarnation where, where God does for us what we are unwilling to do for ourselves. God will be for us what we are unwilling to be for ourselves. And it's, I don't think you could ever, this is paraphrasing Paul, but, but you could never have come up with this on your own. Nobody would have imagined this in Jesus' day or in Paul's day, that this is what God did? This is what God did? To, to keep the promises made at Mount Sinai 
despite our being a faithless people? The answer to that is yes. This is what God has done. So, you know, take advantage of it. Okay. So, just one of my favorite parts of the Bible, right here in Hosea 2. So, do you have anything to add to that, Patty? I don't, Scott. Anybody out there? Anything more? Nope. Okay, well, we I... All, I you know, we can all imagine how, you know, difficult this would be for anybody to be, have lost, you know, you've lost trust in somebody so completely, and then you're still going to give them another shot. And God does it over and over and over and over. So let's put a twist on that as you're coming around. You see, he he doesn't send a gomer, and then we discover that a gomer's going to be no, he a faith. Right he tells him right up front. <laughs> yes. So does God know at Mount Sinai? Yes. That the Israelites are going to be unfaithful. Does God know what God is going to have to do? Well. I would like to believe, if we believe that the, the script isn't already completely written, yes. that God probably knows that's probably what's going to happen, but he's he's letting us see what decisions we make. Yeah. And we well, just keep lot messing of, it up. A lot know. of big questions yes. there, huh? Right, dear? Oops, yeah. where, there's where only are you? My face. I know, we need to get closer oh, together okay, in here, that's why. <laughs> yes, when you, you have to come closer, that's the only way you can do it. Yeah only so big okay so okay again no class next monday no right no class monday no class next monday or tuesday or tuesday or tuesday all right because we'll be away yes but there will be something on sunday downstairs in Pirro yes. hall in place of our class lauren that lauren will be teaching and it will be fabulous the reverend lauren gerlach yes. is doing those fabulous little videos yes, about is. the creed in the nine thirty service i guess they're using about 11, 11 o'clock I, I don't imagine. know the answer to that yeah. But they're fabulous. I hope they are using them at 11 o'clock. I hope so, too. I really do. Because those contemporary people need it, too. So Mike Kelly put a prayer request down and um, regarding this terrible earthquake in Syria and Turkey. And um, are you... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying to get us both in the frame. <laughs> and sadly, I you know, the numbers keep changing and... What I just saw now from the Wall Street Journal is it's over 5,000 people. And it's going to be higher. And it's going to be sad. really high. And it's just absolutely awful. And, you know, it's just part of the world where nothing is built like it is here in the United States. There's no codes or anything, building codes. Scott and I are actually watching something, a documentary right now on this terrible earthquake that hit Nepal in 2015. And... The structures and everything are so similar mm -hmm. that they just collapse on each other. And it's just the so sad, you know, it's so sad sometimes why it's the poorest people in the poorest parts of the world that end up suffering so badly. Really, I, I know the world will come together in a big way to help send money and things like that. But the loss of life and the suffering that's going to happen and, the, you know, we, we hear 5,000 people are dead now we can only imagine how many homeless and you know without 
the medications and all those kind of things. So anyway, let's, I know they're a half a world away, but we really do need to keep them in our prayers. We really, really do. And um, let's just close in prayer and we'll, we'll pray for that today. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day and we do thank you for this way to come together online and we're so grateful it all worked today. We thank you, God, for each person that was here with us today. We pray, God, going forth today that you would watch over all of us. We pray, God, that you would keep us well, healthy, safe, God. And um, we pray for those affected, Lord. I mean, the tens and hundreds of thousands probably that will be affected in some way in these terrible, terrible uh, earthquake and aftershocks in Syria and Turkey. And we just pray, God, for your healing, God, for those that have survived, for those that will have to suffer the loss of family members and friends. And we just pray, God, that the world will come together in a, in a really good way, God, to show your love and your kindness and greatness, God, through the acts of, of Christians around the world. Lord, hold us close until we come together in two weeks. We love you, Lord. We thank you, God, for your amazing faithfulness to us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Bye, Adios. Guys. See you all. Bye-bye. In two weeks. Yes.